Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Everything that I'm doing is just based on following my sense of curiosity. So I'd say stay curious. If you find yourself really interested in something, keep pursuing that path because you really never know where it's going to lead you. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Mom, what's new this week? Raspberries. Raspberries? Yeah. That's what's next in the whole berry explosion that takes place in June. We've had strawberries, gummy berries, mulberries. They're kind of on the wane now. But watch out. Here come the raspberries in full force. And they are a force. Yes. I saw your picture of your raspberry kefir in the almanac. It looked so good. It's so delicious. And oh, and I saw your kefir picture with the last of the mulberries. They've been so sweet and delicious here at the end. I I hate to see them go. Yeah, there's a, there's kind of a magical like couple of days where they're just so sweet. They taste like <laughs> I hate to say this, but the thing that came to my head of they taste store bought, <laughs> which isn't really what I mean because a lot of times store bought berries don't um, don't actually taste that good. Absolutely, but they, I guess I'm, what I mean by that is like they're so sweet. It's almost like they should be fake. and so then once they start to come they all kind of just come so quickly one after the other don't they yeah and they're they're just so many and 
and you want to get them all because there's so many awesome ways to enjoy them and you want to hang on to it. Like, I feel like the strawberries were like here and then they were gone. I know. And since we were reading, um, braiding sweetgrass together in the Almanac, um, the Almanac book club, that was our selection for spring. I've been thinking a lot about the berries and I realized that until recently I've kind of been missing out on a lesson about in that. What, what do you mean? Well, just like you said, when the berries come out in such abundance, you want to get them all. But guess what? You can't get them all. And even if you did, unless you want to spend every day for weeks just putting up pies and jams and whatever else you do with them so that you can have them all year long, um, you know, would you really want all of them? I mean, we do want some of that, of course, but we still don't use all of them. Right. And... They're special for that season, so it's really it's fun to have them at other times of the year. But when when you have them at just at that time of the year, it makes that season so much more special. It's like having it's like listening to Christmas music when it's not Christmas. It's yeah, like, and especially if you've preserved them from your own garden or from a nearby farm or something, and when you sort of embrace um, that, it's something to be mostly enjoyed this time of year. It makes it, well, more simple and more sustainable. Yeah, and the very fact that they are in such abundance and that there's enough for us and the birds and the wildlife and to drop seeds or to compost in the soil or do whatever it is they need to do to make sure that there's berries for next year. The point is, is that there's enough, there's plenty, and that is the gift of the Earth's abundance. Well said, and that's the thing that occurred to me recently. I don't need to feel stress about those last few beautiful sweet mulberries out there if I can't get to them. It's okay because we've had our fill, we've had enough, and there's no waste. It's it's just abundance. And then the birds get to enjoy them. Someone's enjoying them. <laughs> yeah, and the soil. It just goes on and on. Yeah, it's such a slow living lesson. And speaking of slow living, our guest today is a wonderful example and a mentor in all of the ways that we like to talk about it and live it. And uh, so we're so excited to introduce Eva Cosmas Flores. She's a chef, a food blogger, an author of two cookbooks, a photographer, a designer, and an educator embracing the seasonal slow living lifestyle in the Pacific Northwest where she lives. And more recently, uh, since acquiring 29 acres of clear-cut deforested land along the Columbia River Gorge outside of Portland, Oregon, she's added forest restoration to her good dirt credentials. So you'll hear all about that in this episode and her plans for healing the land that will soon be the site of the homestead she will build there with her husband as they create their new family. We just love talking to Eva about her Greek roots and the deep connection she feels to her family and her origins, their traditions, and the enduring connection through the generations to a way of life grounded in food, family, and community. Eva has brought all the best of this way of life forward into the creative life she leads today, capturing and savoring the best that life has to offer and teaching others to do it as well. So we'll hand it over to Eva. My name is Eva Cosmos Flores, and I live in Portland, Oregon, 
and I'm a food photographer, cookbook writer, gardener. Um, and my path started out actually, I guess I'll talk a little bit about my family background because they're like a huge part of what I do. Um, so my dad is from Greece and he immigrated here in his 20s and then he met my mom and she's American. And so they got married and had a little Greek deli in Portland. So I grew up helping out at the deli when I was a kid. And my dad was like really into gardening. So we did a lot of like farm to table stuff. My mom's an, an amazing cook too, as is my dad. So uh, gardening and food were a big part of my childhood and my life. And then I ended up going down to Southern California for college because I really loved photography. So I started shooting um, when I was 15. I somehow ended up at a public school that actually had a dark room in it. So luckily, I learned film then and got really into photography and stuff. So I ended up going to Southern California to study uh, video and film because I really wanted to get into uh, filmmaking. And so that was kind of the trajectory that I ended up going off of after I graduated. Um, you know, I worked some desk jobs in the entertainment industry, ended up being a page at NBC Universal. And then I started working in, in the studio side of things at NBC Universal, which is like a lot of kind of organization stuff. So when you're a producer, you're basically like the organizer of the production. So it's a lot of budgets and like meetings and making sure we're on schedule and things like that. And that was what I thought I wanted to do. But then it was just kind of one of those things where the deeper you get into it, you know, you have this like idealized idea of what the job is. And then when you start actually seeing it up close, you're like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want like I even just listening to you, I'm like, oh, producer, that sounds fun. And then you're like budgets. And I'm like, Bleh. <laughs> you're like, this is not fun at all. And like, so all throughout that time, um, like right after I graduated from college, it was during the recession. So it took me like six months after school to even get like a basic administrative job. So I started my food blog then because, you know, food's always something that I've loved and uh, I love cooking for people. So I just started it for fun because I always cooked for my friends and they'd be like, oh, you know, this is so good. How do you make this? And I got tired of like explaining recipes. So I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to throw them on the Internet and my friends can find it and make it themselves. So like my blog is, gosh, I think like 11 years old. So that was before blogs were you know monetized and stuff and what's your blog called is it still around yeah it's adventures in cooking okay. so it's just kind of like about eating seasonally um there's lots of good seasonal recipes up there and i have some like more garden and homestead stuff too and so all during the time i was at nbc and like working in the studio system i was blogging on the side and that ended up taking over like all my time outside of my day job was just like shooting for the blog and cooking. And I started picking up more like freelance clients and stuff, which I loved so much. And so I was kind of like basically just living for the weekend when I could do all my food and photography stuff. Um, and then I ended up getting an email from this lady about writing a cookbook and I was just like, gosh, you know, that was something that I'd always wanted to do. And so I was like very excited about it. So I signed my first cookbook contract and that was pretty much like the impetus for me to quit my normal job. And 
at that time, you know, in the back of my mind, I'd always wanted to move back up home to Oregon. And so my husband and I were talking and we realized like, there's really nothing physically keeping us here anymore. So we like within a year, we got married, we moved up to Oregon And then we also ended up going to Greece to visit my family there. So my dad's from this small island called Egina. um, And I have a lot of family on the island, but I hadn't been there to see them since I was like 11. So it had been years and years and years, a really long time. And um, my papu was a pistachio farmer. So our family orchard is still there on the island. And, you know, even in LA, like I had this little bungalow in this triplex but I love my unit because it backed up onto this tiny backyard so I even was like trying to garden um in LA like I've just always really loved plants and growing food and so when we went there it was really special because I'd actually never been to the house that my ayan papu um had out on the farm before so my cousins took me out there and just you know my uh also, I will say my Papunia passed away when I was really, really small. So don't really, didn't really get to know them at all. And they also only spoke Greek, of course. So that was a factor too. But being there um, and just kind of hearing stories about my yaya, especially, which means grandma in Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, she like, you know, it was a family of eight kids. So she was like caring for 10 people. They didn't have electricity you know, to make hot water do laundry, she had to like boil water and like, it was like a whole thing. So they were like really, you know, slow living, very (laughs) slow, like painfully (laughs) slow living basically. (laughs) But, um, but just like seeing, you know, the, the trees that they had planted that were still there, like the pistachio trees. And there was this beautiful pomegranate tree outside the house. that had this like big juicy red pomegranate and like all these succulents too that she had planted, um, you know, that were just there for fun. It just kind of really felt this connection to this woman that I'd never gotten to know in person, but oddly felt like it was a confirmation of kind of the way I'd been starting to live my life more and more and like the direction my life had taken. And it was just kind of this moment of like this you know, this is really what I want to do. It just felt right. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of when we, I kind of got this vision of like, you know, I want to recreate this. Like I want to have a slower existence where I'm like more connected to where my food is from. I get to be outside a lot. Um, And so that was kind of like my, like an aha moment for me when I just kind of, had this confirmation of like all these kind of thoughts that have been like swirling in my mind and feelings of just like, okay, this is, this is definitely the right path for me. Sorry. Can you hear my chickens in the background? No, I can't hear them. <laughs> okay, That's awesome sorry. though. <laughs> no worries. It's like they're starting to like sing their morning egg songs. Like, I hope it's not too loud. <laughs> no. <laughs> I hear them a little bit, but it's delightful. That's the best podcast background. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really oh. <laughs> oh, your story is so beautiful. And I really like hearing that how you were able to finally like um, you listened like you were getting all these signals and then um, you went in your it was like your grandmother was sort of speaking to you and saying yes 
Yeah, that's kind of, that's really what it felt like. And it was so special because, you know, I heard so many stories about her from my cousins and she's just like the most warm, loving woman who like loved to cook and feed people and just like would, you know, she was an amazing crocheter. She's like always crochet stuff for people. And so it's just like, gosh, like that's who I want to be. Like she just sounds like the most generous, kind, loving lady. And so, yeah. So then when we, we got back to Portland and, you know, I kept just doing like my blog and I also really love teaching my mom was a teacher before she met my dad and my sister's also a teacher too so I started teaching photography in person and online um and I also wrote another cookbook so I've done two cookbooks and so like all during that time I was like kind of keeping my eye out for a place where we could eventually like create more of a homestead situation because we are in the city of Portland. We're on the outskirts. So we do have like a really big yard, which is awesome for gardening and chickens and stuff. But I definitely wanted something more sprawling. And so I was just kind of keep my eye on Zillow and like seeing what I could find. And um, when I was a kid, you know, there's this area of, the Northwest that's basically the border between Oregon and Washington and it's called the Columbia river gorge. And so the Columbia river is the border and it's like the only, I think it's the only fjord in North America. So it's just like this huge river, these, yeah, these like big mountains on either side. It's really beautiful. And so when I was a kid, sometimes we'd go to this like uh, place called Canada, which is kind of like a little resort for Labor Day weekend. And we'd drive along that river to get there. And I just remember looking at like the houses on the top of those hills and being like, gosh, like, I wonder who lives up there. Like, what it be like to like live in this like amazing place? And then I was, uh, we were in Montana visiting my husband's family for Christmas one year. And I was just like in the basement on the computer and I found this listing for this property that was like really affordable and actually had a river view in the gorge I was like oh my god like we have to go see this and so we went and you know like I think to a lot of people it might have been slightly unappealing because the land was being sold by logging companies so it had been completely clear-cut so it's just mud you know because this is January in Oregon so it's just like muddy um and pretty desolate looking but I just could see the potential there for all the life, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and it just was such a beautiful place. It it just felt like home getting there. Mm -hmm. So we put in an offer like right then and there and luckily we got it. So that's where we hope to be homesteading. Um, Eventually we don't have a house built or anything, but we've just kind of been focusing on like restoring the land as much as we can. That is, that is, oh, that is so fascinating. And, you know, there's so much talk now about, you know, forest um, restoration. So you're like, you're just like really stepping into it there. How many acres did you say? Uh, 29. 29 acres. So are you, I guess you're on the fast learning curve to what to do. Where do you start? With 29 acres that have been clear cut for lumber. Wow. So, yeah, it was a huge learning curve because, you know, as a gardener, I know a lot about 
vegetable gardening, right? Yeah. You know, but forestry is a whole other thing. So I got an Instagram recommendation um, for this gal, Melissa. Um, And so she does, uh, her company's Resilience Design here in Portland, and she does landscape design, but she really has a great focus on permaculture. And she just knows all about like Pacific Northwest native plants and stuff. So I've been working with her from the beginning and she's been so helpful in helping me understand like what we need to do to basically create a healthy forest for years going forward. So right now is a really important time because the land is so vulnerable. When you clear the canopy of the trees, it really makes it so easy for invasive species that aren't native to come in and grow way faster than native species especially the trees, you know, like baby trees take a while to get tall enough to create a canopy to shade out those invasive species. So when you have something like the biggest pain in Oregon and Washington is something called Himalayan blackberry. So it's this insanely thorny, very fast growing blackberry variety that also grows vertically up. So you just, it can grow like, you know, 20 feet high and it's just crazy. So and it goes super fast. So we've been focusing on a few times every year. She comes out and uh, does invasive species control, taking out Himalayan blackberry, scotch broom is another one, and thistle. So we're just trying to keep those invasive species down so that the baby trees can Mm. grow before, you know, they're smothered by anything else. So right now is like a really important time. And that's part of what we've been focusing on. And then another thing with clear cutting is, you know, when you're processing that much lumber, you have this insanely heavy machinery because trees are crazy heavy too. (laughs) So what ends up happening is the weight of all that stuff. Like sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. It compacts the soil down. So like with healthy soil, you have like tiny little air bubbles and that helps the microbes grow. And it also allows the worms to like go through the soil and fertilize it and stuff. But when it's so compacted, it like kills all the microbes. It kills all the worms And so literally when we first went out there, we were like, we're going to buy some native plants and we're going to plant them around. It's going to be great. And so we, uh, you know, we got our stuff. We started digging. We're like, is this just clay? Like it felt like clay. And I was kept, I was convinced it was clay soil. And I kept telling her like, I think it's just clay. Like, you know, I can't, like when you dig, it would stick to the shovel and you have to like (gasps) scrape it off. It was horrible. And so she did a soil test. And she's like, no, it's just really compacted from all the logging. So that's another thing we're working on um, is like, how can we help break up this super compacted soil? So she's been, she gave me like a little seed mix of like daikon radishes. And the cool thing about daikon radishes, you can like throw them down and they're so strong that they'll just like burrow into the ground and break break it you know with like the big fat radish so it naturally helps uh break up the ground and then you know we have lots of deer and all sorts of animals so like they could come eat it or you know you just want to cut it before it goes to seed because you don't want it to like take over um but so we've just been getting creative about like different ways to naturally break up the soil and keep it from being too compacted um and yeah it's just been such a fascinating process learning about 
forestry. Oh, and there's this amazing book that I read that uh, also I learned so much just about trees in general called, I think it's The Hidden Life of Trees. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have I've heard, heard of that, that book. Oh, it's a really good mm-hmm. one. And so it was really helpful learning about kind of how complex forest ecosystems are too. For our listeners, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about the importance of of getting the native plants back in there. I know that I learned a lot about this recently. We live, we're kind of plucked in the middle of a, a, a large agricultural reserve. And so the land has been, you know, over a lot of time has been deforested and become farmland. The preserve is there to actually preserve the farmland so people can grow things. But there are places where you're not going to grow crops and stuff that you want to pay attention to because the invasives come in and tell us a little bit about what happens. I know I've been learning a lot and it's so interesting and I and so many things I didn't know. So it is really crazy the huge effect that invasive species can have just like on the wildlife as a whole. So if you think about all the different plants that live there, you know, they're food for animals. And so a lot of the native species of animals in that area rely on the specific native species of plants as their diet, as their sustenance. And if you get invasive species coming in and, you know, something like Himalayan blackberry, for example, that can crowd out um, more native berry varieties like salmon berries or thimbleberries or huckleberries, now that food source is gone and that animal has to either adapt or just die out. And a lot of times you get them dying out instead. So that's a big part of why it's so important to allow those native species to thrive and really avoid planting any invasive species. Like you don't want to bring anything in and also being just a good steward of the land. And when you see those invasive species cropping up, just like try to pull them out right when you see them. Um, Because it is such a trickle down effect of just the crazy effect it has on the landscape too. And just also in terms of erosion, you know, in the Northwest, we were talking about a little earlier, we get a lot of rain here. So it's really important if you're on a slope that you have plants whose roots go like nice and deep into the soil so that you don't get mudslides and stuff going on. Um, And with invasive species, you know, because there's so much rain here, the roots don't have to go that deep to stay moist and get enough water to survive. So if you only have invasive species around, you know, they're not going to have those nice deep native roots that are penetrating and holding the soil in place. So then you also get just a lot more mudslides and stuff. Uh, Just and the homestead property we have does have some sloping areas and there's like three creeks on it and a natural spring. So we're really focused on uh, trying to keep erosion in those creek beds from getting too out of control because they're already like pretty sloped on the sides. Um, And so native planting is one great way to help with that. It just is so crazy. Like it's just full spectrum effect on from everything from like the plants to the actual physical shape of the earth to the animals in the area it also some things we don't think about when we're thinking about native plants is how it affects the human food supply because um the the pollinators the you know the caterpillars and the the things that hatch on certain plants 
they're very specifically evolved to a certain plant. And the evolution has taken place over, you know, a very long time. And so, um, for instance, in, in our area, I don't know about the Pacific Northwest, but you hear a lot about the monarch butterfly. And the, the caterpillar for the monarch butterfly lives on um, milkweed. And um, if it doesn't have milkweed, then it, the caterpillar has no nothing to grow on. And so, as we know, the monarch is decreasing and near extinction. And, and the monarch is a really important pollinator. The milkweed, and this, the milkweed is toxic to some grazing animals. So here we are in an agricultural area, and if you're growing your fields for hay, you don't want milkweed in there because it's, it's not good grazing. But if you take out the milkweed, then you're eliminating a port, an important pollinator. So it's, so it's so interconnected, and it's so much more than just, oh, it's good to have native species in there. No, it's good because this is, um, has to do with our food supply. So... Hey you guys, I'm here to tell you a little bit about Plain products. We love this company. We were first drawn to Plain because of their incredibly conscious packaging. They've got shampoo and conditioner in reusable aluminum bottles. When you're finished with the bottle, they send you a replacement and you just send your empties back with them and they provide a shipping label and it's so easy and it's just such a cool way to keep waste out of the waste stream, plastic waste, reusable aluminum bottles. I've had, so that means that I've had, I guess not the same bottle since I send them back and they get refilled, but I've just had this, these two, one shampoo, one conditioner bottles in my shower for three or four years now. We've been using them. Love this product. I love the way it smells and it works so great in my hair. I get a lot of compliments on how soft my hair is and how nice and shiny it is. So I like to use the Rosemary Mint Vanilla. It's super refreshing. They also have a citrus lavender scent, and they have all unscented for all of their products as well. And they have so generously gifted this community 20% off with the code LADYFARMER. So what are you waiting for? <laughs> Go place your first order for plain products. Use the code LADYFARMER at checkout and receive 20% off your order. That's P-L-A-I-N-E products. Enjoy your plastic-free shower. Back to the episode. I have a question about um, zooming out just a little bit. You might have mentioned this, but I was so captivated by your story. I forget if you haven't already. <laughs> How far away is this property from your current property? How much time do you spend there? And... I guess I'm just curious. Tell tell us a little bit about like what that's kind of, what that's like, like caring for this place that's like somewhere else. We're lucky; it's not that far. It's like a 50 minute drive okay. each way, so it's not terrible. Um, and then, as far as how often we get out there, we probably go like when it's summer or when it's like not super super rainy. Um, so maybe like five months of the year, we probably are going like two to four times a month. But when it's colder, it's more like once a month. It's not a bad drive either because you're going along the beautiful, so yeah. I it's imagine. a beautiful drive. So even getting there and back is really wonderful and relaxing, and it just feels nice to get away from 
city or you feel like you're leaving civilization when you get out there because it's just open mm-hmm. and there's just the trees and the river and the mountains around and and do you have like a timeline like are you is there any kind of like pressure or is this like very much you're just like slow like letting it rehab and then when y'all are ready you'll like start building we're we do have like a or at least I have a time. My husband's like, whenever, but I'm just like, this is when I want to go there. <laughs> so we were hoping to break ground in a year. Okay. So in like spring of 2022 to break ground to build a house. Because the hard thing is like, there's only so much can you can do when you're like hauling all your tools out there. You know, because, you know, gardening, you need a lot of heavy equipment and like big shovels and all sorts of stuff. Um, and it is a pain to like pack up the truck and then go mm-hmm. out and then come back and then unpack the truck. And so it'd be so nice. To, we could do so much more if we just lived there yeah. and had all our like resources all the time. So, and it's so amazing that we're just like, I just want to be out there now. So <laughs> have you thought about setting up a yurt for the summer or something? Yeah, we thought about it, but we're actually, so the other thing with where our homestead is, is it's in an area called the National Scenic Area. Um, So any, there's a lot of very specialized building codes about what you have up and what you can't because the gorge is a really special, natural, um, like tourist destination in the area. So there's like restrictions on the colors you can build, how many windows you can have facing the gorge because of the reflection, um, you know, the size of the home, all sorts of stuff, which I am completely for because that's why when you drive through the gorge, you don't see like a bunch of white houses, you know, you have to blend into the landscape around you. Um, and so with the yurt, that's kind of again like we'd have to get permitting mm-hmm. and all sorts of things we know about that too <laughs> yeah is that like similar right yeah being in the ag permitting is hard similar it's like such a beautiful place to be and to go to and even like you're saying to drive to i thought of like oh yeah it's like going to my mom's house because it's like just pleasant but it's like you have to follow a lot of rules which i guess is why it's nice yeah. like you said and we're appreciative of them but yeah and it's like um you know people get mad and they complain and um like you know, too many regulations, but the regulations. And we're saying people like we do too. <laughs> we complain <Yeah>. too. <laughs> yeah, if they won't let us do something, we say, "Well, yeah. huh. you know." But then, <laughs> but then, then you have to remember that's wh- that's why we have this. Yeah, is these rules are in place for a big reason, and um, so you you know you, you sort of have to look at the big picture and <laughs> yeah, sometimes be a little inconvenienced. But I want to hear about. The house you are planning, you said you were um, planning like a sustainable home. Um, what are some of your ideas for that? We're planning a, a similar thing on our property. So I, th- I think it would be fun to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, I really want to do an off-grid house if we can. So the gorge is also kind of famous for being super windy. So I'm hoping oh, cool. to do like some sort of yeah like wind power and solar power combination of the two to power the home would be amazing i'm pretty confident that we could do it um especially if we get the house really well insulated which is another really important thing that i want to do is make sure the house is like as well insulated as possible so that when we have these like cold windy winters out there you know we're not using like a ton of energy trying to heat the house as much um, 
the one thing that I do want to be plugged in on is there is a gas line at the edge of the property that I definitely want to connect to as a cook having gas stove is so essential yeah and for like like, generator purposes too well I guess you won't need a generator if you're off grid but it's nice to have that backup (laughs) yeah we'll have a backup one for sure because like if the wind turbine freezes and it's winter and dark in the Pacific Northwest it's like we, we would have no electricity so yeah just to be safe yeah and then the other interesting thing, because I was talking with my friend who's an interior designer out in the gorge, and so she knows like a lot of people in the construction business and stuff. We have a lot of trees on the property that have blown over um, and some that are like j- dead but standing. And you can also mill your own lumber there and possibly use that for construction. So I'd really love to try to do that with as much of it as is usable or possible of the trees that have either like already blown over because of the windstorms or ones that are clearly dead um, but standing and are just kind of a danger a potential danger Um, and it would also it would just feel really neat to know that the trees that are there were also a part of the house itself too what kind of insulation do you think have you thought about that yet I've been researching and it's really hard because, you know, there's a spray insulation, which I think is the most airtight, but it's also really chemically and it's just a hard call to make because then there's more sustainable insulation options like, you know, the recycled denim, but it's not rated as high of an insulation level as the spray. So I haven't decided yet, but I am kind of in talks with a really green building company here in Portland about potentially doing the house. And I'm very curious to see what their like recommendations are for that. Cause it's, it's kind of a toss up. Almost. It's like you have to pick your yeah. poison a little bit. Yeah. We just re-insulated our old farmhouse and I went, I went through the exact same thing and you know, there's always something, you know, mm-hmm. that you, it's really hard to check all the boxes. Yeah. Um, like you say, you can pick something that, you know, you don't want to be freezing to death in your new house. And also energy efficient. Like if you, not just for your warmth, but for conserving energy. Yeah. Which you want it to work. One of our good friends is a um, home energy auditor and she like helps people. Oh, cool. Yeah. And she's, um, I, I, I might connect you. It might be interesting to talk to her, but um. They do that. I know her company does a spray insulation stuff. And like their stance is it works and you do it once. And yeah, like the stuff's not great, but it saves so much energy. So that's like what they do. Well, I have to say what I'm interested in doing for a little building restoration on our land is an old tennis house. It's from the 19th century. And it's in, wow. it's in shambles. It's going to have to go down. I mean, we even need a new foundation. But um, in order to stay within regulation we have to build right on the, the footprint of it okay so, so there's not a lot you know you can't expand it or anything so it's just this little house and um i'm really interested in doing a straw bale construction have you ever heard of that Ooh, yes i have um I'm, i bet it's too wet to do it out there i'm just guessing it you know you, there's a real you have to you have to have a certain amount of dry weather <laughs> yeah although i feel like do they do did they do that in england at it well yeah come time? to think yeah it. Yeah, yeah i think they did it would be straw bale and then the and plaster the, and plaster with mud plaster mm. you know like like the earth so it's a it's a super earthy building thing and i just think it'd be wonderful i'm getting a lot of pushback about it from like <laughs> 
like our contractor says, but you're you're taking up like 18 inches of your interior space all the way around the house. That's a lot of square footage. And, and you know, he's got a point. Yeah. Um, and we can't go outward. Yeah. So, um, anyway, it's something to think about. But I – and then I, I want – and maybe you're probably thinking in this direction too. On the inside, um, you know, I really want to like try to avoid – plastic and yes and all these things that usually go into a household it would just be fun to like start from scratch and say i'm not going to bring anything in here you know of course nothing's 100 percent, but yeah to yeah. really evaluate everything that comes through those doors yeah and just see what that's like <laughs> i don't know it's just well, gonna be a fun project i know you guys both know this but for anyone who's listening um and we talk about this in one of our very first good dirt episodes but Construction materials account for like 40% of everything that's in the landfill or something crazy like that. Like buildings are extremely wasteful or building them. Um, And so I I think it's really cool to have like both of you guys kind of have this experimental project opportunity to see like how you can minimize that. Yeah, it is crazy like we when we first bought this house in portland we did renovate it because it was uh there were some weird things going on some asbestos and stuff and gosh like just seeing the dumpster filled with old stuff you're like god that's so much waste so yeah i would love to like keep it as sustainable as possible the the straw bale thing is very interesting my only worry with that is like straw bales do biodegrade so like how long will that structure last this will be like our house house and i'm just like well i want it to last for like a hundred years and you know be there for my kids and stuff so just like i would love to do that i think for like a fun little cottage on the property um you'll have to keep me posted on how that goes because i am really curious and i know that people in the northwest have done like clay as like an interior wall finish like native clay i think like what you're talking about and it looks beautiful it is i think um that with the straw bale and you know i will learn more about it as we go but it has to be so dry for you to actually be able to use it to build that i don't think the biodegrading is an issue okay I can fill you in more on that as I <laughs> yeah as I I want to hear about this. it. We I'm very and, curious, and we actually I'll send you links to it. But the the past before 2020, we had in person our in person still living retreats at this renovated farmhouse out in Maryland in the country, and it's a huge house. And granted, yeah, she did start with an, a pre existing structure, so there was like some structure there, but she did the whole thing in straw bale, and it's ginormous. Wow. It's like 20 rooms or something. <laughs> So, what? yeah, I'll send you pictures. It's gorgeous, too. Um, and it's amazing what it feels like in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels, I mean, I don't even know the word for it. but It's very grounding. <laughs> you're like, oh. Yeah, you're just, you're surrounded by the earth, you know. Yeah. Um, and you can, you can really tell there's just. Cozy doesn't cut it, but it's something along those lines. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about because when I was hosting photography retreats before COVID and everything, I've been going to the same house in Croatia for like seven years and it has that same feeling because it's an old stone farmhouse, which is totally stone and there's some like wood beams and stuff, but it just kind of has that really grounded home like feel. Like even Mm -hmm. though you're not in your home, you feel 
like mm-hmm. just like a hug almost just feels so comforting. Yes, exactly. That's what, yeah, I was almost going to say that. You feel like you're being hugged. Yeah, I keep thinking too of the word womb, but it's not like dark. Yeah, yeah it's just very enveloping and comforting and yeah, it's really awesome. I feel like it like just taps into our evolutionary brain, mm-hmm. you know, because we lived in caves for a long time. So yes. it's just going back into that. We're like, this is my safe, cozy, wonderful spot. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be yes. dark and scary like we do like when we yes. think of caves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another thing I think about, too, is like if, if we have this little house on our property, like, you know, maybe, I don't know, but maybe we would make an Airbnb out of it or, or whatever. People could go in there and it would be kind of like a demonstration. Like, this is what you can do with sustainable products and sustainable furniture, sustainable tools. And I even think it would be fun to say, um, I mean, this is a no trash zone. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you, you're welcome to bring anything you want, but please take it away if, if it's something yeah. that needs to be thrown away because we don't have trash in this house. I, I don't know. It's just yeah, the fun kind of exercise for people, you know? Yeah. And it's nice when you have your own space that's more off the grid like that. You can really think about things like that. That's something else that my dad was telling me. He was like, you know, growing up, everything was just like paper or metal. Um, and then they had like chickens and stuff and so they composed composed everything in rabbits and then every morning my yaya would just gather up the like quote trash which is just maybe like some papers or string and she just burn it in the morning mm. and that so they had like almost zero waste yeah. and i was like god that's so amazing so eva i want to tell you i had an experience in in greece when i was a teenager um in the what 70s and it was an exchange program or actually went out to be with this family in a little village outside of Athens for like, I think a week. And it really opened my eyes. That was a really old world. And it sounds to me like you, you're you um, describing how your grandparents lived. As, and their house was, was essentially one room. And then there was a little room on the side that was the kitchen. And then they had an outside bathroom. And... um. Everything else was surrounded by this huge porch, and that's where they lived. They lived outside on the porch. And, um, yeah, there was no electricity. There was no running water. They just, you know, they went and got the water out of some, you know, I think it was a big well that was kind of in, in nearby, a big pump. And every day they would walk to the meat shop, the dairy shop, and just get their supplies for the day. I mean, it was just, ma- it was like old world. And it's so crazy yeah. that that was like the 70s. I, whenever you tell yeah. a story, I have to remind myself of that. It's like, that wasn't that long ago. Well, and that's how you're describing your grandparents lived. Uh, yeah. Just like that. Like, did they have electricity? No, they had no electricity. They had a well, so they would yeah. get the water from the well, too. Um, and then the other thing my dad told me was, like, when my yaya would want to bake something, I guess they didn't even really have an oven. They just had, like, a stovetop situation. But if you wanted to bake something... She would like make it at her house yeah. and then just walk to the like bakery on the <laughs> island with the thing and they would just put it in their oven and like bake uh, it for her. <laughs> just so, so funny. Wow. Yeah. It's just like, you know, there's such a sense of community there. I love that story. That just sounds like a, a children's book or something. Doesn't yeah. It? Yeah. Well, I thought you were going to say she just went out and put it out on the, in the sun because the sun is. <laughs> 
the sun in Greece is intense. That is true. Yeah. And especially if you ha- I bet they use sun ovens there and stuff. But um, Yeah. I have some questions about um, your project. And cause you mentioned interior designer. I really, really love interior design. And I'm really fascinated about what makes good design and all of that. And um, yes. I've been watching like the Magnolia Network's new shows. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. And I love, I love watching that. I mean, who doesn't, you know, the HGTV and all of that. But um, I don't know. This is something I've just been thinking about like very recently this week. Like what makes something like trendy? And we don't have to talk about like trends or anything, but particularly right now, the, I feel like the darker wall colors are like in or like back or yeah. whatever. Whereas, you know, a couple of years ago, um, everything was white and open and, and no walls, like every, you know, everything was open concept yes. and now it's like the opposite, which I think is so interesting and, um, not to get totally derailed, but I'd love to hear you talk about your process and your interior, how you're thinking about the interiors of this space and like what you're thinking about that. Yeah, definitely. So I've also gone into like an interior design wormhole the past year, <laughs> just like they I bought so many interior design books and my husband is very mad at me because they keep arriving on our doorstep. But I just, it's so fascinating. I know you can go on Pinterest and stuff, but honestly, if you can get those, like a book from a designer you really admire, Mm -hmm. it's just so inspirational. So like someone who I really fall in love with their work, there's like a couple, I would say like Nancy Wraith White. So she has a book called Simplicity. She talks about how like instead of buying like three mediocre things, just get one really good thing. Mm-hmm. And she kind of like applies that to every room. But then there's um Jeffrey Dungan, I think is his last name. He basically incorporates all like natural elements into the design of the home. So he really only focuses on like stone and wood and I think maybe some plaster. And I've really been, I think, most inspired by his stuff because with the limitations we have, you know, in the Columbia Gorge, especially with the exterior of the house, um, I definitely want to do stone. And oh, wait, his book is called The Nature of Home. Oh, cool. So I've just been really focusing on the things that I think are timeless because like you have been thinking a lot about like the trends and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't want to have a house that is like, this was built in like, yeah. you know, the 20-teens or whatever. Like people can like tell when they look at it. I want it to be something that's like elegant and will just be stylish no matter, you know, what de- decade we're yes. in, right? And I, I feel like when you go with natural materials, you're pretty safe. Like yeah. stone, wood. I mean, granted, there's like the stain of the wood that can change, but that's right. also something that you can sand down and restain as like time mm-hmm. passes and stuff. But it also is interesting thinking about like open concept and stuff because I grew up in a pretty open concept house and I hated it mm-hmm. <laughs> because I there was no privacy. Like you were downstairs and I you could like hear if you were upstairs, you could hear exactly what someone downstairs was saying. It was just like so echoey. And then like just reading about like also being in the Pacific Northwest, we have fires every summer, like wildfires. And so I'm like, especially kind of concerned with wildfires in the area where we're going to be building. So from a fire safety standpoint, open concept is really dangerous because it's actually shocking how easily just a closed door can stop a fire from spreading through your whole house. So wow. it's also better to have like separate rooms that have closed doors before you go to bed in case anything happens. Um, wow. So 
yeah, just trying to think about all these things when we're like design the house and just trying to make it feel like welcoming and warm, but not too like, you know, on trend or whatever. So just trying to stick, I think, with natural materials will be a solid choice. And are you doing it all yourself? Are you going to hire a designer or what? Yeah, so I'm planning on hiring my friend Sam. Her company is called Structured, and it's out in Hood River in the Gorge. Um, I want to have her help with the kitchen because as, like, someone who's a food blogger and does food photography and just cooks all the time, like, I really want the kitchen to be, like, I have a a really good idea of, like, what I want, and I just need someone to make it happen. Um, And she's just fantastic to work with and is so sweet. Um, but then I think I will do the rest of the house my like my self design wise for budget reasons too because yeah you know working with a limited budget here yeah. so <laughs> if I could hire to do the whole I I would do it in a heartbeat but That's yeah so fun oh I can't wait to like follow are you are you planning on like sharing the process and stuff with your blog and everything. Yeah, I'm planning on sharing the process. I've gotten a lot of like messages over the past year being like, what's the, pro- the you know, what's the progress on the homestead? Yeah. And it's funny because you're just like, well, I'm saving. So it's not super yeah. exciting right now. <laughs> just like saving money for the construction loan. But that's cool. But, that's part of it. And I love that people are like yeah. already with you and you're already talking about it because I think that's the part we don't hear about as much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good. It's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's a really but important part of it. It is. We've been doing that for, I think we bought the land like four years ago or something. So it's been some time. So really excited that now there's kind of like a destination on the horizon. Like hopefully we can break ground next year. It'd be so awesome. Cool. You do so many different things. I mean, you, um, you're cooking, photography, styling, homesteading, gardening. You're just... You have all these skills. Is there one of those things that speaks the most to you that you figure your your main focus and other things sort of stem from that? Or how would you describe that? That's a really good question. And it's a tough one because I love a lot of stuff very deeply. <laughs> but yeah. I, I would say for like work, like for work wise, I think the thing that brings me the most joy is like photography. I really love photography and teaching so probably joint like teaching and photography um and then for personally like just on life as a whole I think kind of like the homesteading aspect because it kind of combines a lot of the stuff that I also like really love like gardening and food and crafting like that's a kind of all under like the homesteading umbrella so I guess that's not really like an answer of one because it's still (laughs) like several things (laughs) I can really relate to that it's really it's hard to extricate any of those things and um we tend to be so reductionist and everything. We tend to like, you know, people have specialties and they, you know, this or that is their yeah. main focus. But, you know, real life is just kind of a, um intersection of so many of those things. And Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel like it's not realistic to be so reductionist. Like every person's multifaceted and it's okay to enjoy different things and pursue different things and you know, whether it's like personally for hobbies or with your career, like don't limit yourself. I feel like everything that I've done is because I'm a really curious person and I just followed the things that were 
interesting. So as long as you're just following your curiosity, I feel like you really can't go wrong. Yeah. I love the way you frame that as being curious. I, I think I'm the same way. And I think in in the past, I've uh, sort of had a tendency to judge myself as being scattered. Um, you know, I can't focus on one thing because I'm just always veered off into the other thing. But um, the, the truth, and, I, and the older I get, the more I realize that this is that I'm just really, really interested and curious in a a lot of things. And so my task is not to eliminate any of those things is to, um, you know, learn how to, um, satisfy myself getting to all the things that pull me or, you know, maybe not all of them, but (laughs) (laughs) finding a way to navigate many different areas of curiosity. I like that word. (laughs) How has this past year, 2020 been for you did it change much for you um and like is there anything major that you learned in the past year that you like to take forward what what are you excited about leaving behind yeah 2020 was a very weird year um it was like the first year that I hadn't gone on a plane at all since I was mm, probably like 17 so like years and years and years and years because I love traveling as part, I think part of also being really curious is like, I just want to see new places and learn about new things. And so that was really hard because I do love exploring. And also with work, I host photography retreats in person in addition to doing them online. But the good thing was that, you know, Jeremy and I have been like wanting to start a family. So I had kind of been planning on transitioning to teaching more online and less in person because I knew that having, you know, a kid would like change all that. So we we were kind of already set up to do less workshops in 2020. And then I had to cancel my Croatia workshop because of COVID. Um, And so just ended up only teaching online, which was still really fun because uh, started using Zoom more, and it's been such a great way to do like live Q and A's with students, and like engage and almost feel like you really are able to get that community building feeling that you get from an in person workshop, but on an online setting. Because I had been doing Facebook Q and A's before mm-hmm. with my students, but it's they just have to type in the question; they don't actually get to like talk back and forth with you, and you don't get to see them. So this mm-hmm. is so much been so much better. So I feel like. I've taken away um, a lot of gratitude or I've gained a lot of gratitude this year for like literally everything, yeah. like not taking my family for granted, not taking my home for granted. Like it's just brought into sharp focus, like the things that really matter in life, like being so grateful for my students and the community and like for, with food and yeah. photography and um, my friends just really, I've just been, it's made me slow down and not feel like I've been in such a hurry and everything. I'm just so grateful for Like, even when I pet my dog, I'm just like, I'm so glad you're here. Like yeah. just always like slowing down more and just appreciating every moment. Cause you just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I can relate to that so much. So Ava, what does the good dirt mean to you? Um, and you can answer that literally or metaphorically or any way you want. Yeah, I guess I'll answer it a little bit of both. So like, I think for me, just thinking about in terms of the podcast, it's like really about community, because even though, you know, like we were kind of talking about, we haven't 
met in person. I feel like I already know you guys really well mm-hmm. through the podcast. And like with all the guests that you have on, I always feel, you know, like more connected to those people or like, like I'm a part of a community, even though physically, especially now with COVID, we're not like physically there, but we can still feel really connected. Um, and then with the, with good dirt, I think like physically and metaphorically, it's also about kind of that feeling of connection because when you have good dirt, you can grow so many things and create so much life. And through growing those things, especially someone who's like really enjoys vegetable gardening, you can feed so many people. And with food, you know, especially if you have a bounty of food, you want to share it because you don't want anything to go to waste. And so then that brings more people in to your little circle and just kind of spreads, spreads that life and that joy around. I love that question and everyone's answers. That's such a good answer. <laughs> I know. I, I just, yeah, it's so much fun hearing what everyone has to say. And um, But but you got the right answer. Yeah, you got the right one. <laughs> yes. Awesome. <laughs> you answered it correctly. <laughs> I guess I should have phrased that. When I say, what does the good dirt mean to you? I, I didn't really mean people to speak about the podcast, but I like the way you did yeah. that. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. And, but you did both of them. <laughs> In yeah. both, why not? Yeah. Like I said, I'm I'm multifaceted. So. <laughs> are there any are there any like upcoming projects or things for people to look out for? And um and also, what is it that you want to like leave people with that you want people to most understand about the work that you do? I will be doing uh, a virtual workshop opening up in May. So that's kind of where me and my friend B, who usually hosts my creation workshop together, took our in-person workshop and kind of translated it into more of a virtual experience. So uh, if you're curious about that, you can find out more on First We Eat. So my site is firstweeat.co. And then I'm trying to think if there's any other projects I have coming up. That's pretty much it. (laughs) And in terms of what to understand about me, I would just say like, Kind of like I said earlier, thing that I'm doing is just based on following my sense of curiosity. So I'd say stay curious. If you find yourself really interested in something, keep pursuing that path because you really never know where it's going to lead you. And tell us what the name of your book is. Oh, yeah. And and like where we can find you and all, all of those contact channels. Yeah. So uh, I have two books. One is called First We Eat. Um, and that's just about uh, cooking seasonally. And then I have another book called Adventures in Chicken. And that's all about cooking chicken. <laughs> Lots of chicken recipes. Oh, wow. And I have a blog, Adventures in Cooking. That's, again, kind of like all about eating seasonally. And there's like some uh, homestead stuff on there, too. And I'm on Instagram at Eva Cosmos Flores. And I teach uh, photography courses online at firstweeat.co. I want to sign up for a photography course from you now. They're very fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Eva. This has been so lovely. Like you said, it has felt like we're already friends, but it's so nice to um, see your face and talk to you in person. And I'm sure that everyone listening um, will just have loved this conversation like we have. I just feel so inspired and um excited after talking to you. So thank you. Thank you, guys. It's been so much fun. Oh, Thank you. And inspired is the word, Eva. Thank you so much for (laughs) coming to talk to us. We appreciate it. Bye. Goodbye.
Thanks so much, Eva. We really love this conversation. And um, we also have some fun things in store, a workshop with her coming up. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be this winter, kind of around our slow living retreat. More details on that soon. Thank you, Eva. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Good Dirt. If this is your first time here, welcome. We are Lady Farmer, Mary and Emma, mother-daughter team. We are online at ladyfarmer.com. We're on Instagram at wearelady-farmer. We have an online community. We just kicked off our summer season in there uh, called The Almanac. So if you're following us on Instagram or you get our newsletter, you will be the first to know when we open up enrollment again. And we're here every Friday with new episodes of The Good Dirt, and we're so glad you're here. We'll see you next week.